Blog Talk Radio. We are the UR Tennis Network. Our mission is to be the voice of tennis. We enlist a team of passionate enthusiasts to promote our sport. We strive to bring interesting perspectives on the many spins of tennis. Our goal is to provide the learners of our sport with current news and information from many angles. We seek active participation from communities interested in tennis, but tennis is not interested in them. We are expanding our outreach. Tennis is a true lifetime sport that needs to be talked about, and the UR Tennis Network pledges to pursue this idea relentlessly. Good afternoon, tennis fans. Welcome to the Yellow Ball Network, where you'll find all your tennis news. This is your host, Coach Denise, exploring tennis blessings and the effects on life's journey with our mentors. Tennis is a wonderful sport, which can be the vehicle that takes you through life's journey. And our mentors can provide the roadmap for that journey. Each week, I will be interviewing those mentors and coaches who have paved the pathway for many tennis players and coaches. They have authored books and papers on tennis and continue to give back today. Who are these mentors you will hear each Thursday? Well, on the first Thursday is Alan Fox. The second Thursday is Chuck Reese. The third Thursday today is Dr. John Murray. And the fourth Thursday is Scott Williams, Coach Scott Williams. And on the fifth Thursday, when that happens, well, stay tuned and see who joins our mentor list at that time. I would like to thank the Yellow Ball Network CEO, J.P. Weber, for hosting our tennis network and if you're not following We Coach Tennis on Facebook, you are missing out on useful information. Of course, the nice thing about Block Talk Radio is that if you can't tune in live on Tuesday, say, for Lisa Stone and her parent and aces, or yesterday on Wednesdays for Chuck Reese and his American Tennis Program, you can listen at a time you choose. That's the great thing about Block Talk Radio. Tell your friends to tune in whenever they choose to. And each week, because I believe Dr. King, when he said our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter, each Thursday I will add my personal views on North American tennis and naturally, you will hear my biased views that the tennis journey should be going through our high schools and colleges. And we'll get into that. Hopefully, we have time uh, today at the end of our conversation. Sometimes we don't get into it uh, because our conversation is just going so well that I don't like to stop it. But. Uh, the Almighty willing, you will also be able to continue reading my views in Florida tennis, which is now in its 25th year. As I have previously expressed, if you disagree, please email me at coachdenise.fhstca at att.net. That's coachdenise, D-A-N-I-S-E, 
see it. F H S T C A A T T dot net. Who knows? I may even show you views on the network or even in the uh, magazine. And if you agree with our comments, please let me know that too. Uh, remember, if you're not subscribing to Florida Tennis or someone has taken the last copy of Florida Tennis from your pro shop, you can always read the last issue on our FHSTCA.org website. And you can also find all my articles under the resource section of the uh, website. I, I should mention, uh, besides uh, Florida Tennis celebrating its 25th anniversary, uh, it was the 25th anniversary of the recent Delray Beach Open, and Jim March uh, was the um, recipient, excuse me, of the tribute award uh, at that event. Uh, very special uh, award. And uh, he's well deserved, uh, and we uh, and I thank him for putting up with me all these uh, years. I think I would also like to uh, thank and mention our founder, Jason uh, Haynes, uh, who's unfortunately is going through some uh, tough times right now with his son Seth, who about a month ago was hit. Uh, by a car while he was riding his bike, and he's uh, still recovering from that uh, accident. And please keep him in your uh, prayers because uh, they're going through some tough times uh, right now. And I, I think it's um, important if we all keep him in our prayers. Uh, Hopefully, I'm sure uh, in time that everything is going to work out all right. I I think I'd like to also thank uh, Wilson Tennis. Uh, they've been a big uh, supporter of the FHSTCAs over the years. Uh, during our all-star events, they've, uh, of course, we use uh, Wilson balls, and they've... Uh, were a provider for all the coaches and the uh, players uh, with goodie bags for them. A uh, hundred years uh, in sports. Imagine that. Well, I must admit I've seen uh, over two-thirds of that, and uh, I wish I could be around for the next uh, hundred years, but uh, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but uh, I know it's going to be wonderful uh, times. Uh, Flagler Insurance, uh, the big part of uh, uh, the FHSTCA All-Star events each year. Uh, District 15 NJTL, now in their 20th year of providing tennis programming. Um, those of you that aren't uh, doing uh, tenant on their programs, uh, shame on you because the future of high school and college uh, tennis is uh, there. Uh, you have to start them off and get them involved. Uh, Flagler Insurance, uh, they understand that our future leaders are in high school uh, now, and uh, they've been 
been a very big part of the organization. And, of course, our tennis uh, all-star players and coaches have always looked good uh, each year at the all-star event because uh, they are clothed by Team Connection Tennis, who is a clothier of FHSTCA, and who reminds us that tennis fuels life. I think we have an outstanding um, broadcast for you today, as you know, being the third Thursday of the uh, month. Uh, we have Dr. John Murray uh, on with us, and uh, those of you have, who haven't read his book, Smart Tennis, uh, uh, How to Play and Win the Mental Game, uh, but with, uh, you should uh, read it. It's, it's still important today. Excuse me one second. <clears throat> I'm sorry about that. Uh, sometimes I, I think it's important to remind just because a uh, book was written a while ago, and of course all our mentors uh, have written uh, books, and uh, some of them uh, have been out longer than others, but uh, because something is not uh, the newest issue doesn't mean there's not a lot of information there. Last week, uh, I'm sorry, last month, of course, our conversation uh, with Dr. Uh, Murray was uh, about uh, sports psychology, uh, uh, makes your good coaching and playing even better. I appreciate your comments from uh, the last uh, broadcast. I do uh, agree with you that uh, it uh, should be a part of your team if you're developing uh, players. I know that uh, high schools can't uh, have uh, a sports psychologist as part of uh, their team each time, but as uh, Dr. Murray explained uh, last month, uh, there are things we can do, and I'm glad uh, that uh, the information that I, the feedback, I should say, that I received from last month's broadcast, that everybody agrees uh, that uh, sports psychology is so needed in the game, and maybe in tennis, of course, you know, we all have our own biases, and uh, uh, my bias is I think tennis is the uh, toughest sport. I coached uh, basketball before. It's probably still my uh, first love. These are special times of the year for me between the uh, great tennis that goes on in Indian Wells and then coming to uh, the Miami Open and match Martinus at the uh, same time with uh, basketball. But I think uh, while all sports can benefit from a sports psychologist, I think tennis uh, is had challenges that the other sports uh, don't have. And I think you have to be just as athletic uh, in tennis. I think, well, quite frankly, that's how I got involved in uh, tennis was because of my uh, – 
basketball, and I was uh, sitting there trying to have cross-training. I see, uh, I think I see Dr. Murray. Are you there now? I, I am here. Hi. How are you today? I'm good. Great we to be were, on your show. Hi, John. Hi, John. It was, we were just talking about uh, last month's uh, show a little, and uh, it, there's positive uh, <laughs> comments uh, that uh, we had about the need for sports psychologists in sports and why not more in, uh, in tennis. <laughs> I don't think it's our fault. John, how much did we pay them to say that? Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, it's good. It's, no, it's, it's good. Yeah, I always tell people I want to hear their, uh, when they disagree with, uh, with me, and I do get uh, enough of that because I am opinionated. And I do respect it, and I actually, in the last, uh, this past issue of Florida Tennis, I have a couple of their comments in my article, so I will put that in. But, of course, it's especially uh, nice when you hear uh, the comments and agreeing uh, with us. So uh, I, I think back, it was not that many years ago, I think, it, you know, before I had you at the first uh, workshop that you were there in, uh, a few years before, people saying, "Well, what do we need a sports psychologist for high school wow. tennis?" And then yeah. uh, the last few years, you don't hear that no more. So I think we've made a little bit of progress, anyway. No, I mean, no, it really it, it, it's something that we've been pounding the pavement. At least I have in my in my work. You know, I left grad school. I got out about what ninety eight, ninety nine, and so I've been you know I've been basically peddling this this profession for 19 years you know trying to get people to to see the value and what's interesting about the high school population that actually turns out to be probably the most uh frequent client that i get i'll get the client that, that you know either wants to play better in their high school tennis or they want to get a college scholarship so don't discount that population that's the population that tends to seek us out more than any other so uh, you know, I think it's a huge point of influence that you're that you're standing on when you promote this idea of being a little bit smarter, being a little bit more in control of your emotions, and doing it a little bit more, uh, you know, better than before, better than in the past. And I think today's uh, topic, the mindset during competition, is important. And I was reading, not relating to us, but um, reading an article by uh, UTR, which is a ranking system, and uh, the studies that were done in France. And in the United States, 38% of those player-in-age players that enter a tournament never play again. And now I am going to have a a discussion about that later on the other shows, but I can't help but to believe part of that, I mean, that number just is astronomical large to me, and there's a lot of reasons for it and a lot of blame to go around, but I do think a small part of that number is because uh, the mindset of competitors during a match, and I think that 
tennis just has, uh, you know, it's unusual situations there. You have to be a great athlete, but uh, you have to have, I I think, a good mindset. Would you like to go into what you think is needed? Uh, Say that again. Say the last part. Going to what have you said? You, it broke up. I'd like to hear your views on the mindset. What type of mindset yeah. do you think we're trying okay. to get in that you know, okay. the competitor going in there? Yeah. Okay, well there's many tools and I'll often call my columns or my radio shows or my interviews uh, mental equipment because really it reflects the sense that there are these things that they're not shoes, they're not racket strings. It's not racket grip. Hello, it's confidence, it's mindset, it's focus. Now, today's topic is something that's very important, and I think it probably ties closely to the language that a competitor uh, brings to the court. It's a, it's a tool. It's the thoughts. It's uh, the combination of thoughts with emotional flavor, if you will, um, it's specific content, things that one person might say to himself or herself out there. We, I, I, when I wrote the book, uh, Smart Tennis, I talked about self-talk, you know, the, the, that little voice that's in your head. So what I think is critically important is to do something intelligently and proactively. So do it before the match, do it before, long before you get out on the court, is to develop based on the individual. The coaches can do this too. It doesn't have to be only a sports psychologist doing this, you can, is to come up with what would be considered the optimal mindset and keep it really simple. I'll tell you how you can do that. Keep it really simple um, to promote what you're trying to do in that match. So for example, you might have one or two or three statements that you would say to yourself. I had a player once I was working with, he was having a little bit trouble with energy late in the match. Okay. He was thinking a little too much about winning the match and not just performing or playing um, the match, you know, focusing on the the proper techniques and the proper strategies. And number three, he was um, giving up when things got tough, maybe, you know, so, so I came up with a, I came up with a little, a little phrase that helped this player. It was, it was perform your best. Um, No, I'll say it again. Extremely excited, perform your best, never give up. And so that was the mindset that we, kind of tailored for his particular situation. So by having those three elements running through his brain throughout practice that week and then throughout the tournament that weekend, he made a tremendous progress by simply having a consistent language tool to go along with all the great things he was doing on the court. And that player did really well, won the tournament, was able to keep himself in the moment on process elements, not on outcome elements, was able to not give up that match. And it sounds really simple, and it is, but it requires some manipulation, some behavioral engineering to try to get that player to buy into it and then to take that to the court. And once they do that, John, that's a beautiful thing. You've got somebody that's now extremely focused, extremely efficient, and really you don't want to be playing. I don't want to be playing a person that, 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 that's that well put together but it really, really helps. And most people have no clue what they're doing out there mentally. So this is a way to focus them on something that can be not only 
helpful to them in a particular match, but it, we can change it depending on the circumstances to help them in different matches to, to always have the proper perspective. Yeah, that was a mouthful. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's an important mouthful. I think we need those mouthfuls. I, I think sometimes we talk a lot, and I've heard you uh, speak about it before, and I think the coaches were getting better and we're starting to digest a little, a little better. Um, keeping feedback positive uh, and recognizing, you know, it's, and it's hard for coaches because you're recognizing uh, – what you perceive as a defect there and you want to correct it, but keeping it positive. Is it just, I, I'm assuming, well, I'm not assuming because it's happened to me uh, before, but when that you feel that negative coming into you, something happens, you get into a situation that's happened before and it triggers something and now you have that uh, negative response. Is there how do we turn that around? How does a player turn that around? Well, it's funny you ask. Right before I called you, I had a top, uh, I can't tell you who it is. Obviously it's confidential, but this player has been number one in the world. Okay. In my office. And we were talking about that precise issue. We were talking about, uh, you know, when something gets negative, how you turn it around. And, um, what we can often use is techniques to stop and change the emotional climate. Okay. So you can go back to the fence and wipe your face off. You can tie your shoes. You can count to 10. You can leave the situation, walk away for a few moments. There's ways to, in the short term to kind of reset the emotions, reset the the focus. You know, it's never going to be perfect, but we do know one thing that negativity is probably not the answer. And I'm, I'm saying the obvious here, folks, this is not nuclear physics. Okay. But yet again, it comes back down to, are you doing it? And do you have a strategy in mind to address that? Now I've had other players talk about doing things physically, like take the racket and actually physically turn it from the right hand to the left hand to symbolize a more positive mental state or to do something where they think about a positive past point they played or to do something that, puts them in a more positive mood, but those are all very important stopgap measures to deal with situations when they occur. I would actually rather have, and as I I was telling this player who just left my office, I would rather have them develop these scripts long in advance so that they don't get as negative. They don't have those negative episodes as frequently. So again, it's doing the proactive, like we talked about last time, being proactive and having things in place that are smart rather than having to react negatively to something after it already happens. Yeah, very important. And I could see that a lot of times in tennis, uh, and as a tennis coach, we, I've, I've often talked about the mastery of the game and, you know, the, the scoring is going to take care of it, uh, itself uh, if we master the game, if we understand uh you know, how the game is supposed to be, how the point is supposed to be built and everything. And once we do that, then the winning is going to come. I'm assuming, and I know it has to be much harder, but I'm assuming the same thing can be happening. I hear so much negative self-talk. The mastery of your self-talk, it would seem like, 
that's going to give you the confidence you need in the match. And sometimes as a coach, I felt handicapped that I wasn't, I knew that was an important part of what was going on, but I never felt, you know, I was doing the, the best job at that. Well, yeah, no. Interesting you mentioned self-talk. When I do my assessment for confidence, there are lots of questions related to self-talk. Those two are tied in very, very closely. So if somebody has negative self-talk, obviously they're not very confident. But um, you're, you're raising um, a really important point. And when you perform better in the mental skills, so for example, self-talk or mindset or confidence, when you do that, here's how you want to see it. It doesn't ever guarantee that you're going to win that match, but it does do something interesting. It guarantees that you have a better chance of winning that match. So I tell people, I don't ever promise anything. I don't go around promising rose gardens or, you know, I don't do that. I promise that it's kind of like in a strange way, it's sort of like gambling. You're promising that if you do X, Y, and Z, you're going to increase the percentage or the possibility of winning that bet. It's not going to hurt you. It's going to help you. If you have better confidence and better focus and better mindset, you're going to dramatically increase the chance of winning that particular match. And what does that mean? Over 30 matches, you're going to probably win, you know, 18 rather than 12 or something. Ultimately it's going to help you, but you don't know, you can't tie it to any particular performance. We just know that it's going to increase your chances. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. Uh, yeah. I know when Coach Chuck Reese or Scott Williams on, they'll talk about the, uh, you know, importance of uh, respecting the game and the physical and technical, uh, t- uh, tactical demands of the game. But I don't think uh, people appreciate until they're in the competition the mental demands uh, of the game and uh, how important it is uh, that, that self with self-talk, how it affects confidence, and uh, is, you know, finding that trigger, uh, I, I think to turn that negative self-talk uh, to positive is so important, and I, I would like to explore a little bit more with that if I could. The uh, the first thing, John, to explore that is to make sure you're assessing that. Been a lot of my work over the years, a lot of my articles, is try to how do you make these things that could otherwise be murky and kind of um, I don't know theoretical or or a little bit abstract. Let's say it's a better word, probably. How do you make them really um, tangible so you can reach out and touch them? So that can be a questionnaire. It can be a self-rating scale. It can be a particular set of behaviors that you monitor and you you count. Um, so how do you do that? Well, it's like anything else. If you if you're playing tennis and you and you want to you know have more success and you have a great net game, you might want to increase your approaches to the net from you know ten a match to twenty a match or something like that. So coming in more frequently, for example, could lead to greater success. Now, in this case, you know there's a lot of gimmicks, but um, one of the one of the ones I write about was kind of using the old paperclip uh, trick, where if you make a negative statement, you take a paperclip from your right pocket and put it over into your left pocket, and then at the end of the match or practice, you see how many paperclips have transferred over, and you can kind of set goals to reduce that number. So I, let's say you had 22 negative self statements, 
in a particular match, well, you set a goal the next practice or match to reduce that to maybe 10. And that way you have a way to measure it in, in the moment. Okay. Um, so there's little things like that. Okay. There's coach feedback. If you do something negative, the coach can stop you and, and, and then provide some feedback. Uh, you can also do a self rating, but I think the main thing, I don't, I don't think people take the mental game, even in this day and age, even with tennis being one of the, the flagships for sports psychology, I, I still think we undervalue the importance of assessment of rating. And I wrote a whole book about that in football in terms of how you rate the mental game in football, for example, another totally different sport, but it could have, could have easily been done in tennis as well. But how do you actually assess mental performance? I mean, we could write, there's, there's going to be books in the future about that, you know, about how you actually do that. But we're still, you know, we're still in a, in a period of time where people are starting to get used to this and starting to see the value of this, but it, you know, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not either helping you dramatically or sabotaging everything you're doing. Yeah, uh, yeah I believe I believe that. Uh, I, you know, one of the things I've often wondered, I've often said, uh, well, probably because I am old, but I think some of the it's not all disadvantages that you get old. One of the advantages is that you learn from your mistakes, so. Uh, uh, you just uh, don't make the same mistakes over and over again. But is there sure. an age, is there a time when people, you know, I, I, I was watching uh, in Indian Wells, and uh, I don't know if I should mention, well, I will because it was had, uh, nothing negative, but I was watching it tell of Fritz, a 19-year-old, and he seemed so composed, uh, you know, for somebody his age, and, um, you know, you look at, you know, Federer, for instance, how composed he is now. But people don't realize that he used to throw and break a lot of rackets when he was yeah, younger. Yeah, no and doubt. He, he grew into that. Yeah. I guess this is the the thing that separates and why people like you, to me, are needed on a team. Because, you know, what makes a 19-year-old? A that composed. I, I, I see him and I'm amazed. Some of, <clears throat> great question. Some of that is temperament and personality. I mean, we see some people are more inward. Okay. You might not realize though, that that player could be fuming inside. You know, you might see on the outward behavior, you might see somebody who's apparently calm and composed and maybe they're playing well. Maybe that serves them well and they win the match. But, um, careful though because it could be that they have you know a lot of things going on that are very negative in their head they just don't express it so that's one of, that's one of the hard parts about assessing the mental games you have to understand what's what's what you see is not always what you get you could also have the opposite occur you could have somebody that's um loud and boisterous and they're actually quite calm inside thank you very much um i was never a player to speak of ever really i coached tennis you know and I was probably more that type. I was I tended to be a little bit more loud and a little bit more obnoxious, but internally I was calm as can be, extremely focused. So I think everybody has a different, a little bit different makeup, a little temperament, whatever it is. You need to understand that person, and whether you're a coach or a sports psychologist, you have to really understand that person to try to help them. You know, I think that's why I enjoy talking with you so much, Doctor. Is being able, and why I I really believe when you're 
important to get to your team if you're coaching somebody, you need someone like you on there because I should have realized that. I think back to one of the early mistakes that I made some 30 years ago. I would see somebody very aggressive and say, oh, I'm going to make this person into a, a servant <laughs> volley. I see someone timid, oh, I'm going to build, make them into a bit. And really their outward personality had nothing to do with their game. And yeah. your simple statement, I feel kind of dumb right now. I should have realized that myself, but I think no. that's the, why you're needed. I, you know, when I say you, I mean you and people like you are needed on a team. I couldn't well, imagine having a team without having a sports psychologist on it. Well, John, I'm going to return the praise to you. I mean, you always are so darn humble, almost to a fault. And I think we need more of that in coaching. I mean, to be able to constantly look at your own shortcomings or thinking that they're shortcomings, they may not have even been that, but you're very, very open to that. And I, you know, that's, that's a nice quality to have, but yeah, I think we all can work together to make our clients, our, our players better. It's an evolution. It's an evolution of understanding. And the, the, the latest the biggest frontier happens to be more internal. It's not, you know, it's not climbing Everest anymore. We've already done that, right? We've already cured polio. It's time to get into our brain. It's fascinating. Yeah, that, that will be fascinating. I, get, I wish I could be around to see the results of that. It isn't going to happen right away, but until we get into it, we're not going to find out. That's well, sad thing. I, I think the beauty is you never really reach the limit. It's, you know, the the power that, that is contained within. I mean, I, I even get really bizarre with my clients sometimes and bring up things like quantum mechanics. I mean, that sounds kind of strange from a sports psychologist, but I mean, we're just now starting to understand the double slit experiment that was done back in the early 1900s that basically showed that observation changes behavior of a, of a, of a, you know, the probability wave of a of a beam of a, an electron going through a, a piece of metal changes when you observe it. Now that's a bit bizarre for a, a tennis radio show, but I use things like that to show how incredibly powerful the mind is, and how it really is something that's constantly going to evolve. We're never going to be there. We're never going to have reached the limit. So that's one thing that keeps my job interesting. It's a creative process always. Yeah, wow. Let me ask you a question. One of the things that uh, always uh, bothered uh, me and uh, uh, you know, when the players out there perform and and we're sitting there trying to develop a game, trying to get uh, patterns to play for them and everything. But should a player be thinking about? And and we're of course we're looking for. Uh, on the sports psychology, and when we see something that's disturbed um, in the past, that we we want to sit there and try to avoid it. In high school tennis, one of the nice things is you get during changeovers, and in college tennis, you get coached during a changeover. So when you see right. something, you can go out and dress it. Are you in danger of having a player? think too much about those situations coming in. I often, I sometimes I think I've observed something and I've always struggled with myself. Should I go out and bring this up now or am I going to get them to think too yeah. deeply about it? Can they think too deeply about it yeah. or should they just think? 
couple levels here. Very, very good question. Excellent question. Um, in my work with players, as I get closer, or as they get closer to a tournament, I, I, I keep it simpler. Okay. So for example, today I had, before this tennis player I told you about, I had a horse jumper and she has a show to go to tomorrow in Ocala. And because we're so close to the show, we didn't get into anything new. It was simply a little imagery session, getting her ready to prepare her mind set and her performance for a great day of competition. So that's one thing is, is I think bringing up something in the heat of battle uh, can be counterproductive. It's going to backfire sometimes because you don't have, uh, it's kind of not enough time to process that, especially if you're in an emotional state. Um, but, but getting back to the original thesis of, how do you deal with disturbing thoughts or things like that that are bothersome to you? To be honest with you, um, that's essentially what I use to help them. So let's say, John, you're struggling with uh, a particular type of opponent who cheats or somebody who pushes the ball or somebody who comes in a lot, whatever it might be. Well, guess what we're going to do? Guess what we're going to do in our imagery sessions that week? Or, or the previous week leading up to that tournament. We're going to get you imagining not only that player being obnoxious, obnoxious on steroids. We're going to imagine that player doing everything to rattle your cage and make your life absolute hell. And by doing that in imagery in a calm, relaxed state, just like inoculation works with a, or it's supposed to work, I don't know if I believe in it, with penicillin or, or, or excuse me, with, uh, with uh, what do they call the flu shots, we'll call it. Um, but mentally, I believe it works very well. So as you deal with situations that are difficult, that holds the key to being able to deal with them in reality. So I use a lot of hyperbole in my work in getting people to deal with difficulty, not run from it, so that when they actually face it, it's a breeze. Okay. So that would be, uh, and my interpreting this right, is like sometimes I would tell people, you know, to write down five uh, types of players you don't like to play against, but not cheating so much, but if they were attacking player or defensive players and why you don't uh, like them. And, uh, and what usually happens that way, you would do something similar to that there, but thinking about the mindset they're in. I would give them more grief than they ever had in reality. And that's, if you look back at how, you know, when Tiger Woods wrote his books early on in his career with his dad, Earl, he talked about Earl's brilliance in creating the most difficult possible situations imaginable. And so I think that's what I'm trying to say. We don't always do that in imagery. Sometimes we're just rehearsing a good football performance, a good pre-snap read, a good, you know, analysis of where the receivers are. Um, sometimes we're just getting ready for a, a smooth match where we want to hit the ball aggressively and move the ball around or do something, you know, have good pre-performance routines. But quite often I will get that fighter pilot or that, that person in the military to practice being in firefights or difficult situations where missiles are being fired at them and they have to cope with that and, you know, even in a more difficult way in imagery. And then what happens is we call that process where you get acclimated to something difficult. We call that process habituation. It's 
kind of like getting into a hot whirlpool. It's no longer hot after about 10 minutes. By exposing them to difficulty, they become habituated or inoculated to that difficulty so that it doesn't affect them as much. That is how you change habits. That's the big mystery here. That's the big trick. That's the essence of my practice. It almost seems like, uh, God, I, I think back to a lifetime ago and going in the Marine Corps, uh, I, I, it seems like they really had it uh, right. I mean, going in from high school and thinking that I was uh, a super athlete and going into boot camp where they just tear you down and finding out well, that I was nothing yeah. and I had a hard time struggling to keep up with everybody else yeah. was, uh, you know, to me, it, it probably saved my life, but... Uh, well, yeah, it, it, it does. Yeah, John, it really does. And but the problem with boot camp, how long is that? A month or two? How long is boot camp? Six weeks. Well, it was four months. Well, for it was four months for me. It was normally three months. It was four months because uh, back when I okay. went in there, they was in the Marine Corps. They would hit you, and except for my father, no one ever hit me. That I didn't hit him back, and I made that mistake, well, so I had to be disciplined. I've been listen, listen. I think there's a there's a lot to learn from military analogies, um, but they use a brutal method. I mean, they're de- you're dealing with bullets flying over your head, okay, and live live ammunition when they're trying to keep their head down. That. And, and, you know, they have to be brutal. They have to be physical. They have to whip your ass into shape, excuse my language, as fast as possible. I don't have to do that. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem with that, and this is where I've often been quoted as not liking the military mentality, I call it. That creates a problem of avoidance and a problem of punishment sometimes that can lead to psychopathology. That can lead to a lot of problems, okay? I don't like that. I prefer if you have time if it's a coaching situation, I'd prefer you be a little bit more delicate and a little bit more progressive in your approach. I'm not saying that they're, they're not doing the right thing in the military. That's, that's necessary in that battle situation when you have limited resources and only a short period of time and you have live bullets, right? Of course you got to do that. But in sports, we're not going to die in sports. Hopefully I'd rather be a little bit more delicate in my approach. Thank you. Well, my mother would have been glad to hear that uh, she was alive today. She always said the Marine Corps ruined me. I was such a nice boy beforehand. So. No, no, you're, John, you're a great guy, and what do I know? I, I was never in the military, so, you know, criticize me for that. I never jumped in the military, no, but whatever. No. I, I appreciate no, all the people that did. No, I, I'm just still trying to find answers. Uh, it just... Uh, like you said, the mind's such a great thing, and I wasted it when I was so young, so I'm just trying to catch up at a, at a late date with it. But uh, let me ask you uh, a question. What do you think is the most important thing for a player to, uh, you know, to do to recognize that they're going into a negative because I think it, it's going to happen to everybody. You, you, you could be yeah. prepared, and you, you went in and you're positive, and something's going to happen sometime, maybe not today, but sometime, where all of a sudden that's going to change. 
so how do you how do you recognize that is what you're saying? How do you acknowledge that? How do you know how when that's happening? How does that player recognize it? That that's about to happen, or or don't they? Oftentimes they don't, and that's the problem. So you need you do need feedback. You know, one of the most powerful sources of behavioral change in motor learning is called KR or knowledge of results. So so you have to give them feedback. Okay, they have to see it whether it's on video or through coach intervention or sports psychologist help. Um, if they can't, I mean, that's part of the problem. They don't, they don't recognize that they're even doing that sometimes. So, you know, sometimes you can't even see it. But um, at least the best thing you're doing is by talking to them about that, by having, you know, if you're a coach somewhere in Florida listening to this broadcast and you've got a team of players, I would encourage, you know, a, a certain part of your weekly or daily you know, meetings with the players has a little bit to do with the mental side. And I think by discussing it and by bringing it out into the open and having people dig deep, they can kind of find those points. Everybody's a little different. That's one thing about this work is that everybody's a little bit different. And some people recognize it more than others. Some people never recognize it. And it's incumbent upon the coach to try to bring that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a tough one. Okay, now for a little coaching help. Okay, because uh, we need help sometimes, maybe more from the players, and I, I think the good coaches learn from their players. And I know myself, I'm, I'm a, an emotional type of, of person, and one of the things that I struggled with uh, over the years was trying to hold back to keeping that same expression all the time. And I remember years ago I had a player that I probably got too close to her father died and, you know, there was this situation and taking a father figure and maybe got a little too close. And she one day said to me, you know, Coach, you once did something that she shouldn't have, and I was disappointed. I would walk away so she wouldn't see me disappointed. And she would say, Coach, I'd really rather have you stay here and, you know, let me know. I know I'm disappointing you when you're walking away. How do we recognize and how do we handle those situations? when you're too close to somebody, you know, the boundaries get a little blurred there and becomes a little bit unprofessional. And uh, that's, that, that, that happens all the time in coaching. You have romantic relationships with with players and coaches. You have the father son situations and dynamics and father and daughter types of dynamics. That happens a lot of times. And one of the things the coaching profession doesn't do as good a job, I don't think, as maybe the mental health does hopefully a better job. You know, we get training ad nauseum about that not having a dual relationship. Now, it's a little more tricky with sports, with sports psychology. For example, uh, you know, I've traveled with players to the Australian Open, you know, flying 24 hours on a flight, you know, talking nonstop about their life, you know, in public. I mean, that would break every psychological rule in the books. So it's a little different. Sports psychology is a little bit more like coaching in that regard. But uh, I think some degree of professionalism and some degree of distancing, I think personality can vary widely. You can be more stoic. You can be more, more affective, you know, depending on your personality, depending on your, your coaching philosophy. 
all that's good, but some degree of not, what do we call that, boundary crossing or whatever, uh, that's, that's a, a, a psychobabble word, boundary, boundary violations or whatever, to not let that intrude too much. Try to do your best based on what you know is right. And you probably are doing the right thing, but, but just you don't see that as, as formally um, addressed in the coaching ranks as you do in, say, psychology. Yeah, I think sometimes that, uh, you know, it's easy for us to sit there and recognize what players need, but uh, uh, I, I don't know how, how much of your business are other coaches, but it would seem to go uh, to me, I had, you know, 30 years ago, as you know, you and I talk a lot, and I appreciate talking with you, but... Uh, I think it would have been easier 30, 40 years ago if I had somebody I could talk to. Uh, oh, yeah. Is, is, oh, are coaches a big part of your clients or no? Uh, yeah, no. Um, I would say that as a private practitioner in, you know, with an office, and most of my, by the way, are on the phone, no, I'm not going to say that I'm getting mostly coaches. I'm getting mostly athletes or business people. But in a public sector type job, if you're working at a high school or university um, or an agency, I think you're going to be exposed a lot more. Like at the university level, for example, it's not uncommon for the coach to meet with the psychologist, the sports psychologist at the university to try to get ready for um, helping the team better, to help the mental component, you know, how to help them write speeches maybe or help them prepare to motivate their team optimally. So that's something I think you see a lot more at the college level, um, and I think, uh, unfortunately, the coaching profession, usually uh, they're not well-funded, so they're not going to have a lot of money to pay a private practitioner to do you know, regular counseling. But I certainly, when I've done my private workshops all over, like when I, I've probably been to Wimbledon 10 times before the tournament giving these, these lectures, three-day workshops with uh, a good tennis coach out there, Paul Barton, who, who does London tennis, and he he would always help facilitate that for me. The two of us would do some damage together, having fun with the players. And, co- and I think half the group were coaches there. So that's an example of kind of, and I've done workshops privately where a lot of coaches wanted to learn how to do this you know, better, but, but it just, it, it all depends on the environment. I think it's a need that's definitely there. I certainly, you know, when I was coaching tennis could have used that you know, um, for sure. I think we all can benefit. I mean, even a psychologist, we can all benefit from having other mentors, too, to help us. I think we all need that to a certain extent. Well, I appreciate you being on the show. And, I, and of course, as you know, this is what the broadcast is really about, is our mentors. We all need mentors, and our mentors sharing the information. And I, I really feel blessed to have the four of you uh, each month that you're willing to give back. Uh, you've been given for so long and still willing to give back. And uh, and I think, uh, you know, we all need that. We've gone through uh, a lot of time already. Would you please just tell the people uh, how to get a hold of you and any last couple minutes you want because we just killed an hour, believe it or not. Wow. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean. I appreciate your comments. I'm, I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy that learns from my clients, loves what I do. And if, if that can appeal to you and you want some solid mental training, or if you want somebody to give a speech, 
Very simple. Go to johnfmurray.com. That's J-O-H-N-F as in Frank, M-U-R-R-A-Y.com. And um, if you're, whether you're in Istanbul, Australia, or here in local Palm Beach, get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you. Love to hear from you. Well, John, I appreciate uh, you taking the time to have this discussion again. I look forward to uh, next month's uh, discussion with you. And I do want to remind the people uh, to um, that if you're, somebody is taking your issue of Florida Tennis Magazine uh, from the pro shop, you can re- always read the last issue. If you go to the the home page of uh, FHSTCA.org, www.fhstca.org, you'll see the home screen that it'll rotate. Dr. John Murray, uh, Coach Chuck Greasy, uh, Dr. Uh, Alan Fox, uh, Coach Scott Williams, Wilson Tennis, and Florida Tennis Magazine. If they hit Florida Tennis, well, if you hit any of those other, you'll go to their website. If you hit Florida Tennis, you'll go to the last issue of the magazine. So you will be able to read uh, the whole issue of the magazine just by going there. And, of course, all my articles are always uh, on the resource uh, page uh, in there. But um, please tell your friends, next week we have uh, uh, Coach uh, Scott Williams uh, will be uh, talking with us. Uh, As you know, Scott uh, Williams has uh, coached championship high schools, has coached USTA teams, uh, coached the number two uh, uh, player in the world, uh, Tommy Haas, coached the WTA um, and the nice thing, uh, I personally, and I think the reason that I got so close to this guy is his beliefs, his coaching philosophy is the same. He's coaching champions if he's coaching uh, a uh, high school player or if he's coaching a professional uh, player. It's the same philosophy that he uses for all of them. And I think that's the one thing, uh, if those of you that listened to Dr. John Murray, uh, of course it's a little different. Uh, the mind is such a great thing. We are all individuals and we are all different. Uh, so that makes it uh, his job so much more difficult. But there is a format that they use. And if you sit there and uh, openly discuss things with them, uh, you'll be able to find out. And I think this is the thing that I tried to do in co- when I was coaching high school. I would have parent-player mood- meetings in uh, September, October, November, and then conditioning in December and January. We started tennis practice. But I, I always felt I can't develop a team unless I knew the team. Uh, you, can't, you can't sit there and help each other if you don't know each other. And um, high school players, more, I think more than anybody, uh, John, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure some 
tennis players the same way they don't want to give to themselves. I think maybe that's got to be one of our discussions in the future. How do you get people? You know, it took me three months of player parent meeting, so we get to know each other and love each other, so then we can start demanding of each other. Yeah, no doubt. Great idea. So, I mean, it's, uh, maybe that'll be a t- give that some thought about what your topic is for uh, next month. But please tell your friends about the broadcast. Uh, tune in every uh, week. We do have a surprise coming up for you in two weeks because why? It's the fifth Thursday of the month, and whenever there's a fifth Thursday, we have a guest mentoring, and we'll talk to you a little bit about that uh, next week. But please uh, let me know. Uh, your thoughts, let me know your topics that you would like to talk about. Um, We talked uh, continuously, the uh, four mentors and I, and uh, bring up ideas, and they want to know what uh, you want to uh, talk about. So uh, let me know, and I will let them know. And, of course, you know how to reach them, too. So please tell your friends about it. And I look forward to uh, sharing the blessings uh, with you again next week. And hopefully um, we help, can help make your journey uh, just as little easier uh, than uh, some of the other people's are. Uh, the learning curve, of course, is different for everybody. Uh, mine was a little, uh, took me a little longer than most people, but uh, we'll try to shorten the learning curve uh, for you and um, get you as much information as we can. Uh, you can check the Facebook, uh, the broadcast to uh, be on there, and um, we look forward to talking with you again next week. Have a blessed week, and uh, I will talk with you next week. Take care now. Bye-bye.